All right, so we are talking about worship. I'm going to sit down some this morning. You okay with that? Thank you. Um, we're talking about worship. We started talking about it last week. And uh, how many of you have ever fallen asleep in, in a sermon? Liars. A lot of you. You see my hands up? There, there's, I, I'm convinced there's something in the air in a church building, or maybe it's in the brain. Uh, uh, maybe it's a chemical. It's, it's something in there. I mean, I, I've sat under some really good preaching, and it doesn't matter how bad or good the preaching is. It's like there's, you know, within a certain number of minutes, you know, you just start to feel like I, I can't do anything about it. Like, like this guy. Take a look. Stop laughing. If you haven't ever felt that way, you probably this is probably your first Sunday in church, and you might feel that way today. Well, being bored in church is one thing. Being bored by your faith, something else entirely. You're going to have those kind of Sundays. But if you, when you think about your Christianity, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you think about your Christianity, and it's that kind of ho-hum, really... 
I don't really, I don't feel much. I don't, I don't, it's not compelling to me. Then there's room for concern. And one of the things that I've observed in uh, my Christian life is that when people find their Christianity to be boring to them, they look for something. And and it might be that they want to look in Scripture, which is good, right? But they want to look in Scripture so that they can kind of learn a few new facts and maybe curiosity facts. maybe Maybe if I can figure out what the locust army in Revelation 9 really is. Is it a platoon uh, or a squadron of helicopters or tank divisions, you know? I gets kind of, kind of gets my juices flowing. I could figure out all of these hidden secrets of the end times. And it's interesting, last 150 years or so, how much interest has developed over prophecy. And yet I worry that it's all because there's kind of a curiosity factor. Uh, or maybe, uh, maybe I go and I try to find a ministry or a church where I'm promised miracles every Sunday or every week, ongoingly. Or maybe it's I find hip sermons that are peppered with hilarious jokes. Or maybe a place where the hottest worship music is. Now, nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is that the hottest worship music is not sustainable and the jokes are not sustainable and even the miracles are not sustainable. Many people have found out that the promised endless stream of miracles doesn't show up and that their faith is boring again. We said last week the definition of worship is applauding God for who he is and what he's done. It's giving him praise and thanksgiving Sometimes those are sung as we sang these songs this morning. Sometimes those praises and thanksgiving come through prayer. They're said or they're done. We're going to talk about obedience as worship one of these weeks. I want to wrestle with this morning, what is at the core of worship? What is it that fuels your worship and mine that's sustainable, that doesn't leave us empty after a few weeks or a few months or even a few years? What is it that drives us right to the finish line where we, we're making much of Jesus, we're thinking much, we're, he's, he's the reason we live. What takes a bored Christian and turns him or her into a grateful worshiper? Well, let's pray this morning before we get into our texts and when we're preaching about worship, thinking about worship, we should worship. And so let's do that as we go to the Lord this morning. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of heaven's armies. We long, even faint with longing, to enter your courts with our whole being and our bodies and our souls to shout joyfully to you, the living God. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. We'd rather be gatekeepers in your house than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For you, our Lord God, you are our sun, you are our shield, you give us grace, and you give us glory. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that you would muzzle the enemy who hates you and hates us and hates our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, 
beginning of verse 36. Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if, if this man really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Wouldn't you love to be at dinner with somebody that could answer your thoughts? I mean, how many times do you go out to, some, to eat with somebody or you're in their home and you have certain thoughts about their manners or their parenting or the way they keep their house or the jokes they tell? You bite your tongue. Imagine if they could read your thoughts. Jesus answered his thoughts. And he said to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? That is the key to the entire story. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash, wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, and that was required in a Middle Eastern home of the day. That was basic hospitality 101. But from the time I, came, I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The question Jesus put to Simon was, is being forgiven big or small? Is being forgiven big or small? Now, for the woman, it was very big. In fact, too good to be true. It affected her money and how she used it. It affected her emotions. It affected her willingness to serve. 
don't really know how much this perfume was worth, but based on what was described, if we transfer, uh, transfer it from the currency of that day to the currency of today, it might have been worth between fifty dollars and $60,000. I don't know about you, but I'd put that in the bank instead of pour it on somebody's feet. She was glad to open it up, and scholars tell us this wasn't a screw-on cap. If you were going to use this, you were going to break the top open. You're going to use it all at one time. It was for very special occasions. And she's weeping. This, what Jesus has done for her is weep. And apparently she had some prior encounter with him. She'd come to him not hoping to get something, but having been given something. This is her response to it. And she's weeping. She's overcome with emotion at what he has done for her. And it's now affected her willingness to serve Jesus. She's at his feet, the position of a servant. Jesus would have been laying, reclining on a, on a couch with no back but an end, and he would have been facing this way, but his feet would have been facing this way, and she comes as a servant would and washes his feet with her tears and with his perfume. And meanwhile, over here, Simon, muttering under his breath, he's unhappy both with the woman and with Jesus. He's disgusted that Jesus would receive this kind of treatment. Let me just stop here. I wonder how many of you, in listening to this story, thought, man, this is inappropriate. That there's romantic overtones here and even erotic overtones. It's part of the challenge of jumping back 2,000 years and trying to understand the culture but what's instructive for me is that Simon isn't concerned about that. He doesn't see in this anything of that sort. What he sees is a man who's supposed to be a prophet being touched by a woman who's the local prostitute. And he's disgusted at Jesus that he'd allow him, that he would permit that. And he also thinks he's better than this woman. Is forgiveness small or big to you? Believed he was better than the woman? I, I think he probably believed that he was better than Jesus as well, because after all, he would not have left her touching. Jesus said this in Luke 5, 32. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who... Know they are sinners and need to repent. Would you read that verse with me out loud? I have not come to call, I've come, I'm sorry, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. You see, Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't interested in religious people, but they weren't interested in him. What he came to offer, they didn't think they need, needed. Oh, the local prostitute, she needs a lot of help. I'm uh, getting some physical therapy. I injured my back several months ago. I'm trying to avoid surgery if I can. And so I've been uh, doing PT for the last number of weeks. And uh, 
couple of days ago, I was with a therapist that I had been with last fall, and he was filling in for my therapist now who's on vacation. And we've had conversations before about spiritual matters. He's a member of a, a pretty liberal church. Uh, but it was interesting. He made the comment. He said, uh, I have talked to my pastor that she needs to talk more about the wrath of God. And I said, well, why? He said, well, we need to teach the wrath of God because there are some people who are not as good as they should be. Now, based on how he said it and that he said it, I assumed he meant that those were other people that needed to hear about the wrath of God because they were not as good as they should be. And what does the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The town prostitute and Simon, who knew the scriptures of the Old Testament inside out, upside down, and backwards. James 2.10, I go back to this verse because I think, over and over, because I think it is probably one of the most desperately needed things for American Christians to hear. Those of us who feel like we've, you know, our, our lives are pretty good, we, oh sure, we, we stumble every now and then, but they're really small things. And James says, two, in two, James 2.10 says, if we keep the whole law, and James was writing especially to Jewish Christians, if you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you have become guilty of it all. And so if you demonstrate pride or if you tell a small lie or if you have a heart towards someone that's not loving, you've become guilty of having men pay for a night with you. You've become guilty of taking innocent life. You've become guilty of adultery. You see, the, the, the glory of Jesus Christ is only glorious to people who see the forgiveness that he offers as big rather than small. Romans 10, 11, and 12 says there's no one righteous, there's no one good, there's no one who seeks God. We're all brothers and sisters in the same boat apart from Jesus. And when we get an understanding of the magnitude of that forgiveness, it makes worshipers of us. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. We were in chapter 4 last week. I'm going to continue the tour of heaven here to see how it is that forgiveness ignites worship. So if you remember chapter 4, Jesus took John into heaven in a vision, gave him a little tour of heaven, but it wasn't just to see the, the accoutrements of heaven, the furniture and all that. It was to reveal the heart of heaven. 
And if you remember, he saw the throne on which God the Father sat, and there are these four living beings that are some sort of angelic creatures, and then behind them there are 24 elders which are human beings. And they're all worshiping, they're worshiping, they're falling down before the one on the throne because, as it's said in verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. Now the focus shifts in chapter 5. It shifts from the one on the throne to someone else. Verse 1, then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. I don't know who was under the earth. I think simply... John's probably simply trying to make the point that this search for someone worthy was exhaustive and they found no one. And John was so distressed at this, he begins to weep. One, for his own human race, that there's not a single credible, worthy person in the entire race who is worthy. And two, now what's going to happen to the plan of God? If we can't proceed because we don't have somebody worthy, what's going to happen to God's plan? Verse 4, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is this? Lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. This is Jesus himself. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. You see, they were falling down before God the Father on the throne in chapter 4. But now they're falling down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, so this is going to be musical worship. And they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. As Jim Basimala loves to point out, have, have you ever thought that your prayers are so precious to God that he keeps them? And he keeps them in golden bowls. And they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Let me just stop there. So nobody was found to be worthy, and then a hero appears. And we know that he's a hero because the praise band starts up with this new worship song. Now, it's interesting 
and says this lamb appearing over here, and he's a very odd lamb. He has seven horns and he has seven eyes. And it says that he looks like he had been slaughtered. That is a gruesome word. I mean, it even sounds gruesome, doesn't it? Slaughtered. And it doesn't get any better in Greek. Sfadzo. That sounds awful, doesn't it? It's supposed to. The only time it was used was to describe the ritual killing of an animal for religious purposes. And the head is drawn back and a knife drawn across the throat. And it says that he looked as if he, had, he was slaughtered. And so you might think he's dead now. And that you would understand that he was slaughtered if there's a lot of blood around. But then it says that he's standing. So he's now alive. So you wonder how... John knew that he had been slaughtered. I wonder if there wasn't a scar, a big, vicious scar across his throat. Looked like he had been slaughtered. And they break out in great worship with a new song. You're bored with your faith, and you are an Eagles fan. Were you bored last year when they won the Super Bowl? I was watching a video this week that was a composite of fans. They had about a five-minute video. They had put together um, videos that fans had taken from their television to watch them as they watched the game. And it's fascinating to see that. You know, the people are, you know, they're, oh, like this when something goes bad, and then yes when something goes good. And, and they put these all together, the final seconds of play. I mean, what are the chances? Carson Wentz goes down, regular season. You got to back up Nick Foles. I was going to quit football a couple of years ago anyway. What are the chances he's going to do anything? And then he wins one game, and then he wins another, and then he wins somehow this backup quarterback's in the Super Bowl, and the Philadelphia Eagles have never, ever won a championship, ever. And all of a sudden, they win. And in these videos, the fans go, oh, big deal. Didn't really catch me that much. It didn't, didn't really impact me. Are you kidding? I saw women weeping. And I'm like, seriously? Weeping. Guys are fist pumping in the air. I saw one guy hit the ceiling with his fist. I thought that's going to leave a mark. Jumping up and down. It was the greatest thing ever if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I was even excited. Washington Redskins, come on. I mean, that's saying something. But you think about the, the things that got you excited about that game. But aren't you disturbed if you're less than enthusiastic like that about your faith? Doesn't it concern you? The angels join in worship after this, verse 11 starts out with these 28 
the elders, the four living beings. And then I looked and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in now in this much larger, mighty chorus. Can you imagine the, the, the sound that must ring across heaven? Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But we're not done. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. Now, if I understand that right, creatures... In heaven and on earth, okay, angels and people, and under the earth, still not sure who that is, and in the sea. I think he's talking about scuba divers? I don't think so. I think he's talking about blue whales and dolphins and, and, and stingrays and sea bass. And if that's the case, it would also probably include bald eagles and great blue herons and Baltimore Orioles. You remember what they said to Jesus when he was riding into Jerusalem on his donkey and his followers were lifting his praise and worship and, and his critics said, shh, shut them up. And Jesus says, well, if I do, even the, even the stones are going to cry out in praise. Far easier for blue herons to cry out and praise than stones. In other words, everything that God has made is going to resound to the worship of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Why? Let's go back to verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because of this. You were slaughtered. Your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have caused those people that you have saved to become a kingdom of priests for God. And those king that kingdom of priests will one day reign on earth. And so if you are a child of God, if you have been born again because of Jesus, that's you. And John is saying that this is what triggered worship. In other words, if the gospel does not move you, nothing will long term. If you are not captivated by the forgiveness of your massive sins, if I'm not captivated by the breadth of my sins, the size of them, and the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to me, despite them, nothing will ever make me a worship. Conversely, if I am captivated by the sacrifice that Jesus made for me on Golgotha's tree, it will make me a worshiper that will never stop. I will go right into heaven worshiping like I did on planet Earth. The worship expresses the love of one who realizes what Jesus did for him or her and that it's just like this woman 
who's washing Jesus' feet and drying them with her loose hair, which, by the way, no Jewish woman would be caught dead with her hair down. She didn't care. Jesus was the Passover lamb who was killed so that we wouldn't have to be killed, died so that we wouldn't have to die, experienced the wrath of God on his shoulders so we wouldn't have to experience that wrath. It's interesting. Have you ever noticed when we gather together for Thanksgiving Eve and we invite one another to give thanks to God that it's often the things of this earth that will not carry over into heaven that we thank God for most quickly. Our families, our jobs, spouse, children, reconciled relationships. But Jesus' forgiveness, that goes on into eternity. I want to read some lyrics from a song. It's written about 10 years ago. I cannot find the author anywhere. And maybe that's appropriate. It tells the story of the thief on the cross. It starts out that way. You remember that? Hanging next to Jesus. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Condemned to die on a cross for crimes he had done. He was guilty, everyone could see. But his destiny was changed as he looked at Christ and said, When your kingdom comes, remember me. In paradise that day he stood, just like the Lord had said he would, surrounded by those who had gone before. And one said, Friend, how did you come? What are the deeds you have done? With tears in his eyes, I can hear him reply, There are no merits to my name, no works that I can claim. He who brought me here told me to say, I have come by the way of the cross. I have come by the way of the cross. It is nothing I have done. It's the suffering of God's Son. I have come by the way of the cross. And then the songwriter begins to speak autobiographically. I have nothing to claim but my guilt and shame. Hopelessly lost, I could not find my way until his glorious light of love shone down on me. His mercy washed all my sins away. And what he did for me that day was a price I could not pay. And by his grace, I too can say, forever say, I have come by the way of the cross. I have come by the way of the cross. It's nothing I've done. It's the suffering of God's Son. I have come by the way of the cross. And then there's a bridge. I see millions gathered round the throne from every kindred and tongue, those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And as they cast their crowns down at his feet, this will be my story. This will be my song. I have come by the way of the cross. I have come by the way of the cross. It is nothing I have done. It's the suffering of God's Son. 
I have come by the way of the cross. And if you need an infusion for worship, go back and reread the book of Romans. Reread the book of Galatians. Read Hebrews again. Read all the last chapters of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And never feel like you've graduated from the gospel. Never feel like you get over revisiting the cross and the blood that was shed there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. My prayer would be that your forgiveness would become big, big, big. I guarantee you it will make a worshiper out of you. Father, thank you for the lamb who was slaughtered on the cross, who did not consider equality with you something to be clung to, but made self nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, became obedient even to the death on the cross. And I love that picture in Revelation 5 where it says the lamb is standing not among the angelic beings, not among the four living beings, but he's standing among the elders, among the human beings, the people because he became one of us and he died as one of us for us thank you so much and I pray that you would make more and more of a worshiper of me and all of us that our lives would be the overflow of worship to the Lamb it takes away the sin of the world.